Welcome to the Bolt Zone. This is a competitive magic podcast for the average spike, co-hosted by me, Cody DuBose, and the reigning magic world champion, Nathan Stoyer. We're bringing you the best tips, tricks, and strategies to improve your game and be a better player. And today we are joined by a special guest. It's Travis Brown, aka Disgruntled Elk, to talk about uh, one of Modern's fastest decks, and that's Hammer Time. But before we get into that, Nathan, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I've been focusing a lot on getting ready for Worlds, which I can't quite talk about on the podcast today, but stay tuned for the Worlds recap episode in a few weeks. And otherwise, I just played in the Modern Super League this past week with your pet deck, aka Racto Scam, and had a ton of fun doing that. So I've been playing a bit of Modern and otherwise just focusing on a ton of this new limited format and uh, standard yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited to to talk a little bit about Super League and and hear your thoughts on Scam now that you've had a chance to join the dark side. And uh, Travis, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm having a great day, you know, just a normal week, had a good weekend. Um, excited to be here chatting with y'all. I, uh, I've enjoyed the podcast for a while now, so <laughs> glad to be on this. Awesome. We, we appreciate you listening and appreciate you coming on today. You know, Nathan and I have been talking over the last few episodes about modern and how we think that hammer is in a good place and like no one's picking it up and we aren't sure why. So we thought it'd be a good idea to bring you in today as the, the resident hammer expert and sort of talk about the deck and give people an intro to it as well as sort of more of a deep dive into the archetype and some of the the edges you can pick up there, ways to gain equity in your matches. So we're going to uh, focus most of the episode today on Hammer. And like I said, we're also going to touch quickly on um, Nathan's first pod results from last week's Super League competition. But before we dive in, just a quick list of shout outs to our reviewers and patrons. Thank you so much to everyone who takes the time to listen. We couldn't do it without you. We got several new five star reviews over on Apple and some ones on Spotify. So thank you for all of that. And a huge shout out to The Closer for becoming a patron this week. We appreciate that support very much. And listeners, if you would like to support the show as well, you can do so by leaving us a review on your favorite platform or by signing up for the Patreon. You can do that for as little as a dollar a month. We'll leave the link for that in the show notes. And again, stay tuned in the next couple of weeks. We'll have an update about uh, our fall updates to the Patreon and the different rewards for those tiers. But again, if you want to check that out in the meantime, the link is for the show notes. And then lastly, just a quick shout out to our main website, which is both the The site recently got a facelift. We have a great new look and we'd love for you to check it out. There's a lot of excellent new content coming out for you to enjoy over there. We cover a variety of different formats from casual to competitive, and there's definitely something for everyone to enjoy. So we would recommend just checking out the new site. But let's get into it here first, Nathan. Let's talk about Super League. This is an exciting new series taking place over the past couple weeks and then upcoming. Uh, but you were on Scam for this first pod, and you were in a, a pretty loaded pod. So tell us about yeah. your experience. One thing to note about these Super Leagues and how the structure works is we have pods. So there's 16 players in this event, and it runs for, I, th- I think the initial season is 12 weeks, but... What this means is there's pods of four, and it's actually quite simple. We'll just break it down really quickly. You have to win two before you lose two in a pod of four in order to move on, and it's a double elimination bracket. So if you lose two weeks in a row, then you're out of the tournament. And 
The goal is obviously to be the last person standing, but the cool part about this structure is it's a small metagame, meaning like you only have to account for three people's deck preferences. And this is sort of where I like to show off some of my deck building prowess because when I'm playing in these sorts of closed fields, one thing you get to do is you can specifically target players that you'd normally never be able to account for in a wider metagame. And so one thing I did this week was I decided, hmm, one player who's in the field is Simon Nielsen, a close friend of mine and a teammate who likes to play kind of off-the-wall decks. Um, Some of the decks, though, that he's been gravitating towards recently that I mentioned on the podcast last time was Hammer Time and Amulet. And so one thing that I thought of was, what if I played some number of wear tears in my sideboard in order to try to account for the hammer decks? I thought that this would be a pretty good plan if I ran into either of those decks. And as an added bonus, Corey Baumeister really likes the Breach and Artifact decks. And so I could target two of these three people by just devoting a Godly Shrine and some wear tears in the sideboard. Uh, it turns out in practice, I didn't need these extra tech cards. I ran into no decks where I needed to play wear tear and, and they came off came with some unexpected decks like Blue Red Storm featuring four Flame of Nor, which was a really cool find. And Corey stole our Tron list from the last PT and copy-pasted it. <laughs> so <mostly rude>. so. <laughs> Well, I it thought- was a good thought. It was a good thought. I think that, you know, teching for those super small pods is, is very interesting. What did you think of the Godless Shrine? Did you even, like, play the Wear Tears at all in the pod or... In the pod, I didn't have much time to play them. I, I won the first two rounds I played, and so I played against uh, Carmen Clump Herons playing Living End, and in that matchup, I didn't really think there was any reason to play those, and I actually played a few extra Graveyard Hate pieces in the sideboard as well, so I was pretty happy to run it to Living End. And then round two, I played against Simon on Storm, and versus Storm, I was just excited that I was playing Scam because it seemed like that side of the matchup was traditionally why something like Storm wouldn't be viable. But... You know, the other goal I had was I could play some anti-hammer cards to scare Travis before having him on the podcast. And so, Travis, I wanted to give you a little introduction and then hear a bit about, moving on from the Super League, what your experience playing hammer is. So for those who aren't familiar with Travis, uh, Travis is a competitive grinder who has done quite well for himself with the Hammer Time archetype in the past year boasting, I believe, five, maybe six top eights in large events, and most recently top eighting the 20K at SCG Columbus, as well as the 5K at Apex Gaming. So Travis, tell me a bit more about yourself and your experience in Modern. Yeah, no, uh, thank you. Uh, And I was scared of the wear tears, but I think I'd be more scared just playing against you in general. So I don't (laughs) think you need the extra (laughs) intimidation. Um, Yeah, so I... If we're looking at my like history in magic, I've been playing magic for 20 years, something like that. Um, but in reality, I've only been wanting to say, okay, you know what, I'm gonna grow up and play a good deck. Probably posts like when once started like events started happening kind of post-COVID. And I said, you know what? Hammer looks like a meme. I like memes, let's play it. I started picking it up and I was very upset when I found out it was actually hard to play. Um, and so yeah, I uh I basically been a hammer main since kind of the the format has started to come back since mh2 luris kind of through multiple iterations um and sometimes you play a deck and it just kind of vibes with you and you really enjoy the play patterns and i really enjoy playing the deck because every time i hear oh you know travis is good at the deck or whatever i'm just like man i messed up every game Uh, And so I feel like there's always something to learn with the deck. So that's kind of what's kept me engaged. Yeah. 
And I like how you sort of talked about, well, you picked up Hammer and at first you're like, oh, it's kind of fun. You just give plus 20, plus 20, plus 10, plus 10 to your creatures with a Sigarda's aid in play. But now that you're playing it more and more, it's like you're realizing it's very intricate. It's not really something that you can even perfect after playing a ton of games and you're you're learning with the deck. Tell me some more. I'm curious to hear. So like when I've played Hammer, one of the things I notice is it's really, really hard to have the perfect list of Hammer. Like every single time I've submitted it afterward, I've been like, hmm, that was like three to four cards off. And and so what is your experience perfecting the list for a weekend if you're going to play Hammer? And, and what does that process look like for you? Yeah, so I for a long time, like there are multiple schools of thought on, okay, how, what is the best hammer list quote unquote. And I got to the point where I realized like, it doesn't matter. Um, at the end of the day, as long as you have the core of about 50, I think we're closer to like a core of 53, if we're being honest now, um, cards and you have your reps tap. The sign is the meme that I point to where it's like, don't make me tap the sign that says the hammer deck is just good. Put whatever you want in the flex plots, just have a plan. So I think having a plan for matchups matters a lot more than the exact configuration. Um, Because you can, you know, you can put a bunch of removal spells in your sideboard for, you know, X, Y, or Z. But if you don't have a plan for what comes out and how you want the matchup to play, then you're going to have removal spells and you're just going to not kill your opponent and they're going to beat you anyway. Um, But the biggest kind of deciding factor of what list to play right now, I think, is do you want to splash or do you want to go mono white? And there are a bunch of different things you can splash right now. um, But the most common is, I think, the blue splash because people love their spell pierces, which I get. Um, But yeah, so that's that's kind of where I start when I'm talking about, okay, what list do I want to play this weekend and kind of go from there. Right. One thing about the hammer deck that's super interesting is that it has the ability to shift roles in the blink of an eye from what I've seen. And this means that when you're playing against it, you not only have to be prepared for them to have turn two kills, but also for them to just grind you out with Urza sagas and drawing cards off pure steel paladins and just equipping their creatures. So you have to spend your premium rule spell on something like an ornithopter. And that's kind of what makes playing against the deck so tricky in my opinion, because if you're a player who's a little bit newer to modern, it's very hard to know how do I sideboard against this deck? What sort of cards do I want to take with my disruption? Even how many sort of effects do you want to have like Blood Moon to stop them? And, and so I also, I'm trying to figure out like, if you're playing against Hammer, what are the best tips to attack it? I know you don't want to give away all the secrets, but if I'm trying to pick up a modern deck and my goal is I want to beat Hammer with whatever I play, I just need to have a plan against it. How do you attack it? What is the weakest angle for it? Um, so do you want to discuss kind of like the, the macro decisions of matchup analysis, or do you want to talk about like general kind of game plans that any deck can try to adopt? Sure. Why don't we start? We'll take a step back. Let's start with what are the key cards in the hammer deck? Why don't you break them down for us? And then after that, we'll get to how do you play against the deck, um, in, in multiple ways. Yeah, so you can break the deck down into basically equippers and hammers, and that's kind of the the first level. Um, So the first part is going to be, you know, you have your four Colossus hammers, you have your four Urza sagas, which are hammers with suspend, and they come with like 10 power. And then you also have your Stoneforge mystics, which are usually hammers, but they can be other things as well. Then you have your equippers, which are you always have your Sigarda's aids and your pure seal paladins. And then you have some number of People were playing Core Outfitter. Don't. That card's bad. Um, so Forge Anew is a very powerful card. It costs three mana, but you get what you pay for. And so like those are the, the A plus B part of the combo. 
If I were to pick one single card that is most important to hammer, though, it's easily Urza's Saga. Because Urza's Saga lets you go, okay, my opponent, you know, bolted my three creatures. I can't connect anything. And then all of a sudden, you still have these hammers in play. So, okay, I'll make a 3-3. Now it's a 4-4 with a second 4-4. And now they're both 5-5s. Five I'll go grab a Shadow Spear, start attacking for, you know, 11 damage. Um, so the biggest, like, cornerstone to that heck is Urza's Saga. And if you can address Urza's Saga, then it plays out like a normal creature combo deck. So then your removal spells actually matter. Um, I think a lot of the misconceptions people run into and when people say, oh, I have a great hammer matchup because, you know, I have four force of vigors. It's like unless your four force of vigors are backed up by pressure and or like a, a very good game plan, then that's not good enough because removal spells have always existed and combo decks have always been able to fight against them. It's how to approach it. And that's, I think, where it gets complicated because hammer does shift between aggressor, grinder in the blink of an eye, like there are games where I have, you know, three permanents in play and then my opponent dies the next turn out of nowhere and they don't know what happened. Yeah. And so if I'm playing the modern super league and I put wear tears in my sideboard, do you think that's a good way of counteracting hammer? Or do you think there are better ways? Like if I'm trying to come up with the best possible plan for just hammer, what would you say? Because they have sanctifier and vec two as a sideboard card and that concerns me, but maybe there's not a better plan. I don't know. Yeah. So if you want to beat hammer on scam, you just play, um, uh, Hidetsugu consumes all and you'll just beat the crap out of them. Like, like you will just beat hammer with that card. Wear tear is good. Um, but the problem with any spot removal right now is there should always be four surge of salvation in your hammer opponents 75, which just so it was the best protection spell ever printed for hammer. And that's why I'm so comfortable on the mono white build, because now you have a one mana answer to basically every good hate card against you. That isn't exactly like engineered explosives or chalice of the void. Gotcha. You think chalice is a card that you'd want to play against hammer? That's also a tricky thing. <sighs> it's. Yes, with an, a big asterisk. So it is a yes if you don't need one mana cards to work. So I have seen scam players bring in Chalice against me. They play it on one and then they proceed to lose very easily because I just played Urza Saga and Stoneforge on two. Um, so I don't like it in those. But and I think we're going to talk about kind of the matchups later. But any deck that can really control the board. So like your blue white controls, your four color controls, things like that. When they have Chalice as a prison element to cut off a large swaths of my deck and then also have the ability to kind of mop up the remains. That's when I'm pretty spooked by Chalice. That makes a lot of sense. One thing that that's also I, I would love a breakdown of is how do you think about Mulganing with Hammer what is sort of the ideal hand? What are hands that you're like, okay, I'll settle for this if it's in my opener. Yeah. So I mulligan with hammer, like almost for fun at this point, like people, I, th I think it was at, yeah, it was at SCG. I won multiple moles to four on camera against like Tron was on seven and I got there. And the reality is it doesn't matter if you have four cards, if they win the game. So I see people keep like medium sevens or medium sixes. The reality is, if you multi five and one of your cards is Urza Saga, you actually have a seven card hand already, but you're probably going to beat a lot of people just with that. So if my seven has, the whole so is like matchup dependent, of course, but if my seven has an equipper and a hammer, I'm generally going to keep that kind of regardless. If it doesn't, I'll throw it back almost every time. Sixes, if you have a powerful plan. So if you have like Giver into Stoneforge Protect so you can cauldron them, it's pretty good. Or if you have just a strong Urza Saga start, that's usually good enough as well. 
knowing the matchup can change that a lot. But basically, when I'm deciding if I'm going to mulligan or a hand or not, I look and go, okay, what do the first two, three, sometimes four turns of the game look like? Can I kill someone in those turns? And is it reasonable to expect that I can kill them within those turns? Like, if it's just an ornithopter, an aid, and a hammer, and I'm on the draw, and then like four planes, that's like probably not going to get the the job done. I'm probably keeping it anyway because I'm greedy sometimes. But if you have any sort of ability to go, okay, I'm going to threaten a big attack. So, you know, attack for 10 or 20 on turn two. But then I also have the ability to layer in additional threats like an Urza Saga. Then you're talking about a really powerful hand that most people are just not going to beat regardless of whether it's pre-board or post-board. Cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One other question about that. Where do you or how do you sort of factor in like the plan B of like, you know, Cauldre complete or like Saga tokens compared to plan A of just killing them with a hammer creature? How does that sort of impact your mulligan decision? You know, maybe if you can't find that optimal hand. Yeah, so I will weight the sagas very heavily because they will just sometimes they just hard carry you through the whole game. Like you make a couple five fives and usually that's good enough. Um, They also make just grabbing a shadow spear off of a off of the chapter three saga really good because now you can pressure very reasonably. Um, Cauldre is a nice kind of for me, it's like plan C slash plan D. I like to have access to it, but unless I know it's going to kind of just win the game on its own. I'm not huge on it against scam. For example, I will tend to keep a wider range of hands because getting grief scammed that doesn't feel good no matter what happens. But if I have the ability to put a cauldron into play on turn three with protection, like one or two protection layers up, then I will just rely on that because I know cauldron will just win the game in that case. Yeah, that makes sense. And cauldrons we'll talk about a little bit later, but cauldron is just like kind of a free include with the four stone forge mystics. It's like you, you play one, but really you get five. Yeah, it's, like I, I've thought about not playing it. And then every time I don't play it, I'm like, man, I really wish I had access to Cauldre here because sometimes you're really far behind on board and you just need to hail Mary. And that's a really good hail Mary. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing you mentioned too, is just with this X, something that's so important is planning out your plays, you know, turns in advance because you sometimes have to start lining up these, these kills, you know, two, three, four turns early. And if you're not thinking that far ahead, you can really shoot yourself in the foot and, and leave yourself in a position when it's time to go for it that you just can't, whether you're, you're short on mana or you just don't have the resources to get it done. Yeah, and I will say one thing people overrate when... So if you have the ability to hammer like consistently and you have the ability to connect a hammer to a creature, people will typically overvalue their Urza Saga constructs when in reality it's like, oh, I really want the value. But in a lot of matchups, like against Tron, I don't care that I got a construct. I care that I hit them for 11. Um, And so sometimes playing out, playing, knowing when to play your Urza Saga is a huge piece of learning how to play the deck optimally because there are games where I will get zero constructs. I will barely make mana off this thing, but I'm going to play it on turn one because I need to go get something on turn three to set up either a kill or a lot of pressure or like a lock piece. Right, yeah. And again, that's just, knowing when to do it at the right time and you have to wait that the three turns. So if you're not doing it three turns early, you're, you're already behind. So that's important. Definitely something that to learn. All right. So we touched on a bit earlier 
that you can sort of play them on a white version. And that's got a lot of upgrades recently with Surge of Salvation and being able to play Solitudes. But there's also, you know, some other versions, the, the blue white version is pretty popular. And then we've also seen some people splashing black. So let's talk about each of those just briefly and sort of the pros and cons of each splash list, as well as the mono white list, in your opinion. Let's start with mono white, because I know that's sort of what you've been on lately and, and sort of have been promoting. So let's start with that one. Yeah, so the the big benefit to Mono White for a long time was just you got to play four or five Horizon Canopy lands, so you got to kind of not flood as much, things like that. Um, but I think it was Hank the Obese who started playing like the Shining Shoals humans list with Solitude in it, and he was doing that with, you know, I, there were some other bad white cards in there, which I respect, a, you know, an aficionado of bad white card. Enjoyed it. <laughs> but um, the big piece, and I played through a league because I enjoy that kind of deck, was I realized Ameria's Call with all the white cards you're already playing in your deck. So like like duplicate Sigarda's Aids, things like that, usually pretty bad. Um, so we can probably then play Solitude, which one of, the, one of the weaknesses of the deck is, you know, you don't have a lot of interaction and you're also usually choked on mana. So Solitude fits really nicely into the plan. Um, so for me, the big reason to play Mono White right now is you get to play Solitude either in the main sideboard or whatever. Um, but then you also weirdly have like these really good mana sinks. So sometimes you are often casting solitude for five mana. I mean, on I think multiple times people have seen me at this time cast Amiria's call, which that's a weird one, but we can <laughs> we can get to that. Um, but yeah, I think that's the main benefit to playing the the mono white. You also have options that we didn't have a year ago. So like Reprieve is a counterspell in white, which I'm not a huge fan of, but people have played to success. Um, Surge of Salvation was the biggest piece, though, right? Because before you had Blacksmith Guild, which is really good protection spell, but you still kind of get blown out by things like Force of Vigor, things like um, Colgan's Command, stuff like that. Whereas Surge of Salvation just, it's such a gigantic beating that it's the best counter spell you can play. Um, and then, of course, the other upside is you get really clean mana. Like you get to play 10 plus basic planes, which. When someone's trying to blood moon you, because a lot of times when I would play the blue white version, scam players really like, you know, would blood moon me. And sometimes my deck just stopped functioning because I have like Seachrome Coast and, and Hollowed Fountain in play. But with 10 basic planes, like they're only really addressing the um, the Urza sagas. And so you kind of get to ignore it more or less. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to make a note too for anyone that's not super familiar for Surge of Salvation, why we keep talking about why this is so important for Mono White, because it is played as a four of in the blue white list also, is basically the Surge of Salvation is your counter spell, like Travis said, and that just lets you fight back against the interaction without the need to splash into blue for the counter spells um, and that angle of things. So just a quick note on that. But uh, that's a great breakdown. Let's talk about the blue white list just quickly. Again, we have Spell Pierce and then some of the other like notable pieces in the blue splash is the Reality Chips. So I want to touch on that for a second. And then out of the sideboard, there's some list playing Lavinia, Azorius, Renegade as well. Yeah, so I... Spell Pierce is a great card, um, but I think right now it's just not at its best. Um, it can tag the ring. Um, it can tag a lot of different things, but it's usually very choked on when it's good. I'm also not a huge fan of just holding up mana every turn with hammer. And so like against the four color decks where you would think it's great because they go, oh, you know, they play Teferi and you counter it. The issue is if you tap out to be proactive, which you have to be in these matchups, you then can't hold up the spell pierce and now spell pierce does nothing, which is a huge problem to have your, your cards just kind of go dead and hammer. Um, that being said, spell pierce, 
is just a pretty good card. Um, and so that's the main pull to blue for sure. It does address some things that you might run into, like weird things like calibrated blast. Um, but it also, you know, it can be good in spots against like Tron and things like that. I'm less sold on it there because if you don't have it exactly when you need it, then they just ignore it. Yeah, it just doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then the other piece that I like blue for reality chip is it when it's good, it's the most absurd card you've ever seen in your life because it drew you eight cards when it's bad. It is. It's really, really bad. It was a five mana. They killed your thing. It does nothing. The other card I do really like, though, you mentioned is Lavinia Azorius Renegade because she's just really powerful. Um, obviously, she's a little harder to cast and she only has two toughness, which is really relevant against Rhinos. But the fact that she counters Force of Vigor, she stops Tron from deploying expensive threats ahead of curve. She does a lot of good. And I think Spell Pierce and Lavinia are the two main reasons you would want to be playing a blue splash for sure. Yeah, that checks out. And then the the third version, which is just the black splash, which Again, notably, this is a lot less popular than the other two, but there are some people playing it out there and a few people have had success with it. This version is mainly splashing for Thoughtseize as just early interaction to sort of protect the plant and then Bowmasters, which has just been really good. Um, What are your thoughts on that one? Um, So I think Bowmasters is like a good card, so you can only go so wrong with it. The question is, does splashing for these cards kind of solve an issue? And so I think the answer is no. Um, I think Bowmasters is very good. And if like the up the beanstalk four color piles really start to pick up, I might adapt Bowmaster because I can't imagine they're they're ever winning with a Bowmaster sticking around. Um, But yeah, it it makes another body. The issues, like I don't know what I'm cutting at that point because like like Esper Sentinel people are hating on right now. I still think the card's very good. Just cut it when it's bad that seems pretty pretty easy to me um and then thoughtsies i think is far and away your worst option of the re- interaction right so like surge of salvation is a counter spell that's either countering a pitch spell or it's countering like a three four mana play um and you didn't have to do anything <laughs> you just like hold up the single white for it um spell pierce it's great it forces them to play super off curve it can tag like a renin six it does a lot the problem I have with Thoughtseize is I liked Thoughtseize when you were a Luris deck because you could like just grind, right? You can go put Luris into my hand. I'll Thoughtseize you. I'll deploy Luris. I'll rebuy something and just get a lot of value. But now when I Thoughtseize my four color opponent, let's say, and I see the ring, Prismatic Ending, Leyline Binding, and Solitude or Teferi, it's like, what do I take? Those are all effectively, you know, beating me. Um, yeah, I think you just I'd cry re- in that spot. Yeah, I think you just move on to game two. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So it's the issue of you don't want to make the game about low resources because you have bad cards in your deck and your opponent probably doesn't. And to add on to that, one thing that's kind of important that I've noticed is like as the hammer player, you want to have mana positive traits. And whenever you cast a Thoughtseize, you're trading down on one mana that your opponent otherwise would have spent. And so there's this general trend of like, the hammer deck performs, and, and you tell me if this is your impression as well, the hammer deck performs really well when all of your plays are both cheap and force your opponents to make more expensive exchanges. And then every thought sees or effect, even spell pierce can be like this because you've wasted that two mana before you get a plus one mana exchange, uh, can be a problem. And and so the way I see the, the deck performing at its best is whenever you get to perform where your deck one exchanges resources to where they're trading down and they're falling behind on tempo every turn or two, the way your threats are set up 
are when you play your threat, it does a thing on top of that. And so every exchange they make is also a, a resource exchange that's negative for them. And uh, I think that that's one of the best ways that Hammer can kind of attack these more fair decks as well. Like even versus Scam, I played a little bit of that matchup recently and I was like, whoa, like I actually have to be a more aggressor, more of an aggressor in this matchup than I'd like to be. Yeah, um, I think you hit the nail on the head. Being mana efficient in Hammer is huge. One of the advantages is your whole deck is like very inexpensive to play for the most part, um, which is also like the reason that I like Solitude so much more than any other removal spell as an option because every other removal spell I have to hold up, you know, a mana or two mana, whereas I just get to like jam, they have to then respond and then I get to Solitude their thing for free. So yeah, being mana down with Thoughtseize is a huge huge problem and then of course sometimes the life loss does matter because you're also probably playing fetches and shocks in that build so you're like all right i'll start the game at 15 which can be a problem yeah for sure and i think that you know you mentioned that like all your cards are are pretty cheap to play but at the same time hammer is a pretty like mana hungry deck because you just want to be doing multiple things per turn you want to be just puking out your board so like you need that mana you can't you can't really always afford to go down on it yeah any other points we want to make about Hammer sort of generally before we dive into some of the matchups right now against like other top meta decks and in the specifics and in that section? I, I think just kind of as a, a word to the wise, if people are wanting to pick, pick up Hammer, because I think it is really well positioned in the meta, um, which I think y'all talked about last week. Um, it is a you, you have to put in your reps because you. I learn a lot of times by like burning my hands. So it's like, I'll do something and I'll get blown out and I won't do that again. But putting in the reps, getting the practice, I think with hammer will reward you a lot more than a lot of other modern decks. Cause I think the floor on hammer is lower than almost every other top deck in modern. Um, I think the ceiling is higher than a lot of them, but you, you have to get to the point where you're getting to that ceiling before you're going to see the success. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. All right, so we're going to get into the matchup breakdown in just a second. But before that, we want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Boogie Board, the ultimate LCD life pad. Boogie Board's patented reusable writing surface allows you to track life totals and jot down quick notes during casual or competitive play. Never worry about ruining a notebook in your bag or running out of paper mid-game again. After taking down your opponent, just press the button to clear and you're ready to start over. Boogie Board's best-selling jot tablet offers plenty of writing surface while the jot pocket is perfect for tighter playing spaces. Boogie Board is available at friendly local game stores across the country and at major retailers. You can learn more about it at myboogieboard.com games. That's myboogieboard.com games. Never start a match without your boogie board. And Travis, we were able to hook you up with a Bolt the Bird boogie board. Thanks to our friends over there. So hopefully you enjoy that. All right. So let's talk about some of the good sort of medium and bad matchups right now for Hammer in the meta. And if you need an overview of the modern meta right now, you can go back to our last episode where Nathan and I sort of cover the uh, top 10 to 15 decks in modern and different intricacies there and why you should be playing them what their strengths are so we're gonna talk about a lot of those decks today just from the lens of playing on the hammer side so let's start with scam we've talked about that a lot scams the most popular deck right now generally this is a good matchup for hammer you have a very you know streamlined playing game one where they can't interact a whole lot obviously they can they can strip your hand and, and make you a lot of resources but as we talked about you can you can win with four cards if they're the good cards sideboard you have sanctifier to make this matchup even better but i think sort of the the big question is 
how do we handle the turn one scam and the mulligan decisions? Because we talked about how important that is for the deck. What kind of opener are we looking for in the scam matchup? We'll start there. Yeah, so you're looking for Urza Saga and a functional hand, basically. Um, Urza Saga does so much work against scam, especially game one, where I have one on moles to five where my opponent grief scams me and then they die like three, four turns later because they take my two spells and I just play land, Urza Saga, land, make a construct, make a construct, grab a shadow spear and you can race. Um, so the the other piece, and I want to I want to call this out because a lot of people forget about it until they get blown out by it from the scam side is Surge of Salvation also gives you hexproof. So if your hammer opponent goes planes go, you should probably not grief scam them because they surge of salvation. You don't get a card and you don't get another card. Um, so surge protecting from every removal spell as well as like thought seize effects is really uh, it's it's pretty backbreaking. And so I mostly look for any functional hand because usually scam will not pressure you too quickly in, you know, in the scope of a hammer game. Um, they can fury scam you sometimes. Um, and that's why I do like the solitudes a lot, because then you solitude them and usually their hand doesn't go go much further. But yeah, I usually look for any functional hand. Um, Cigar to aid, especially game one, is basically impossible for them to answer. So if I know I'm against scam, I will deploy the aid very quickly because that means any hammer I, just, I draw off the top or live as well. Yeah, for sure. I think that's that's great. And the first thing you mentioned too about Urza Saga is like we talked about how that card can just carry you. This is one of those matchups that it can absolutely carry you and just it asks so much of the opponent to answer everything it's going to do that like the scam deck that that needs like the resources to do its thing and then is running really resource like the rest of the game. It's really hard for that to answer. So definitely something to highlight. Um, all right. So once we get into the sideboard games, we talked about hit it consumes all being just like backbreaking for hammer because it just does everything. Not every scam deck right now is playing that. So if you're a scam player and, and hammers on the upswing, that's something you should consider. But we also sort of the, the, main hate piece that's coming in i guess is is engineered explosives some decks are playing culligan's command and then there's sometimes extra fatal pushes in the sideboard too so how are we handling the extra hate out of the sideboard and, and what's the plan for navigating those yeah um so all of your surge of salvation come in that's the easy part because that addresses everything except ee um the best way to play around ee is try not to kind of overcommit into it um, oftentimes you can stagger your, your mana costs and EE does cost minimum two mana from the pop if they want to do it on two. Um, and then of course the last piece is the, the one needle. I, I like one needle in the main right now because of the meta, but one needle should definitely be in your deck post board because being able to grab it off of saga chapter three can create a really interesting dance. We, I'm sure we'll talk about the, uh, the priority dance that is the needle from Urza saga chapter three versus EE a little bit later. Yeah, that's pretty cool too. Whenever that comes up, because if you have EE and your opponent has a saga that might pop off, you don't necessarily have that window. Like if they if they just decide they're going to pass priority with saga, you have to crack your EE if you're in a board state that requires like any sort of sweeper to the board. the The one thing that also becomes sort of tricky with EE against hammers, like you do have a lot of flexible mana costs beyond the Cigar to Zayden Hammer. And so like being able to put constructs in play, things like Pure Steel, things like uh, Sanctifier and Vec versus Scam specifically, and all of the one drops, of course, creates like a struggle where there's too many things that you want to cover. So I think that Hammer's resiliency in that way is very notable. Yeah, very resilient and definitely 
gives the scam player a lot to think about when they're deploying that EE and what they want to put it on. And Travis, like you mentioned too, uh, the the timing dance of of that specific interaction. We are going to talk about that after we sort of look at these different matchups. There, we have a few tips and tricks for for playing hammer and, and sort of getting the most out of the deck. So we'll talk about that at the end here. One thing I wanted to touch base, and this is a wrinkle that comes up explicitly in the solitude version versus the non solitude version. I'm still not sure if they're going to bring in blood moons against you because against mono white, it's only shutting off saga basically. So I think you should assume there will be some blood moons, but you shouldn't worry about it too much. This is one of the primary reasons I like the solitudes right now, because oftentimes they will just try to scam you immediately. And if you're able to exile their threat for free on like turn zero, one, you might take the two spells out of your hand that they could take anyway, so you can tag their grief. They usually don't have a lot else going on. Alternatively, people will fury scam you on one oftentimes to try to run you over, and being able to tag that also will usually end the game. Plus, the games go long, so like at, at the NRG, I think it was my winning in, I cast multiple solitudes for five mana. And just like, yeah. all right, I'll kill your fury. That feels super good. <laughs> yeah, um, and then the only other piece... And this this is a hot take. I think Sanctifier is like really overrated against scam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I actually tend to lose more games where Sanctifier is in play than not, because oftentimes I'll get baited into keeping hands that are medium, but they have Sanctifier. And so I'll get Sanctifier into play and then they'll play Grief and Fury. And so I'll block the Fury and I'll take four for a few turns and then die. I think a better plan, at least in the current meta, would be something like a Nettle Cyst, which is why I was actually playing one or two copies in the 75, because it's a reasonable sized creature. It can chomp an early fury. And then also just like all of a sudden your creatures are five, six, seven power just out of nowhere. All of them are big. Um, and so that's something I, I do want to throw out there that I think a lot of people do not think of as a, a deciding factor. But I think Sanctifier is like pretty overrated against scam. It's good, but. In Hammer specifically, I think we just have better tools. That's a fair point. And I think that the, the Nettle Cyst call is, is a good one, too, because I, I, in my short time of playing the deck compared to yours, have really liked the Nettle Cyst in those grindy matchups like Scam, where, you know, you have that first body it makes just off a living weapon, but then you have, you know, you can equip it for two or equip it for free with Pierce Deal or Forge Anew and, like, hooking that up to a construct and making it huge or, or hooking it up to um, a solitude that you've hard cast. Like that can be really good. And that can lead to some huge life swings that they're just like not going to beat. So um, interesting. One more thing I actually want to mention before we move on is this came up for me playing over the weekend. The scam opponent like goes for turn one grief scam and you know, your lands are Amarius call or saga. We talked about this over the weekend. You said that, you know, usually it's not correct to take that Amarius call. They did. And like, it kind of screwed the game. But talk about that for a minute and and how that land being a spell actually can come into play in this matchup. Yeah, sometimes they take your land and you lose the game. But oftentimes they take your land, you draw another land and they lose the game because they took a land instead of Sigardizade. Yeah, so against a good scam player, I usually don't anticipate that being the case that being said if my hand is two amaria's calls is my land yeah they should take those and i'll probably lose sure. the game um, sure. but this is kind of the cost of doing business yeah high risk high reward <laughs> exactly okay awesome let's talk about rhinos now so we know that a hammer equipped creature is simply bigger than a rhino we also know that they have access to a lot of powerful and free interaction um, they have the, the pitch elementals such as you know fury 
Um, subtlety can also come into play, I guess, uh, but also force a vigor coming out of the board. And then also coming out of the board, they can, you know, flash in an endurance for three mana to block your small creatures if you're swinging recklessly. So um, we hear that this is a good matchup. Is it as good as we think and why? Um, so the I, I think in modern, even when you're talking about good matchups, there are ones that are very much like 80-20. This matchup is very, very hard to win or very hard to lose, depending on which side you're on. But in in modern, the powerful decks are all just really good. And so even when you're favored in the matchup, I think it's probably not it's probably not more than like a 60 40 matchup. Um, I think Hammer is uniquely good against Rhinos in that the plan A is so good against Rhinos. Like you just make a big idiot and it's bigger than all their idiots. Um, right. <laughs> like <laughs> like um, there's that piece. Urza Saga, once again, shockingly, a really good card because usually you don't even need to hammer a creature. You just make a couple constructs that are five fives or six sixes. It's like the plan A of hammer of make big idiots is just favored against the deck that is make two pretty big idiots. Right, right. Like One thing thing about rhinos too is that rhinos doesn't always have draws that can do anything before the first, the third turn of the game. And it seems to me like this is a sort of matchup where if you win the die roll, it's pretty hard for rhinos to catch up from behind particularly in pre-board games if they come prepared for hammer and they bring a ton of force of vigors like this does seem like the sort of matchup where they have that pressure a lot of their flex slots are now interactive cards and so maybe the force of vigors are better in this match than they would be in other decks but to me it feels like you would certainly want to be on the hammer side just given how much you can just sort of focus on executing your own game plan like how often do you Stoneforge Mystic for Cauldra too? Because that seems like a thing that might come up a good amount here. Yeah. So if I don't have an equipper rolled up, it's yeah, usually Cauldra. Um, yeah, the I kind of want to roll that into the overall pacing of the matchup. The the games I lose against Rhinos are whether they go removal spell on one, removal spell or fire ice on two to tap my land, and then rhinos into rhinos. And it's like, yeah, you're gonna lose most of the time when that happens. And so is um, most decks in modern. <laughs> Yeah, which is fine. That's the nut draw, right? Um, but if they are not pressuring you and you just grab a cauldron, yeah, it's really hard for them to address. Like they can bounce it, but a lot of times they will post board lean on those force of vigors, those dead gones, those kind of things, which are just pretty inefficient against a cauldron. And so you just like put the cauldron into play. And even if you can't attack, it may, they, they can't really attack until they have, you know, four or more rhinos, at which point you know you're you're in a pretty good spot probably because the game's gone on so long also shadow spear seems like a card that can come up a lot here where like you're playing a sort of racy matchup where you know if you're trying to do your thing and they're a little fast out the gates that seems like a key card that can allow you to swing the tide back in your favor yeah absolutely like even if you don't have the equipper you just make a couple big constructs um like it was i think at scg i had i did nothing but made four constructs in a row um, and I grabbed a shadow spear. I attacked with a 10, like a 10, 10 and a nine, nine construct. They threw three rhinos in front of the big one. So I traded two rhinos for 10 or 11 life. And it's it. Yeah. Shadow spear is really good in the fair plan, especially game one when they don't have a lot of answers to those artifacts. Awesome. Any other notes before we move on from rhinos? Force of vigor, obviously very good. But like I've I've said in the past, right, you can't just say I have force of vigor, so I have a good matchup because if that were the case, Hammer would have been pushed out of the metagame a long time ago. Um, you have to pressure as well, which is those are the matchups where Rhinos wins, right, where they like 
remove a thing or two, put the rhinos into play, force a vigor you after that. Um, one little tidbit I want to throw out is Surge of Salvation is the absolute backbreaker, and I think it's why the matchup is quite solidly in Hammer's favor, because all their removal spells are usually two-for-ones when they're the good ones, so Fury and Force of Vigor, and you just, if you Surge of Salvation, then you probably win the game. Um, that being said, if you can wait to deploy your Urza Saga for a turn to where you can protect it with a Surge, you probably should, because a good Rhinos player will just like Force of Vigor the, the Saga on the spot. That makes a ton of sense. Okay, the next deck we wanted to talk about was Tron, which I, I've played a lot of Tron as of recently, but Tron is the sort of deck, and so from my experience, uh, it has a pretty hard time in games where it doesn't draw a card in the Great Creator. That seems like a very important card. But tell me a bit more about your experience playing that matchup, because from what I can see, it's like Tron is the sort of deck that obviously needs to assemble its thing, but it's not particularly interactive in the early stages of the game. And it needs to make sure its payoff actually wins, which is easier said than done against something like Hammer. Um, how do you feel about this matchup? Yeah, um, uh, the One Ring did not help Hammer in the matchup. The One Ring does a lot to buy Tron time. That being said, Hammer can do its thing on turn two. Tron's not doing its thing until at least turn three, and that turn three might not be good enough, right? If they just go Karn Liberated, that like that might not be good enough to win. Um, so yeah, I think it's just an issue of neither decks are interacting a lot, but hammer is at least a full turn faster. Um, that being said, I think the matchup can be quite close. And if you know you're against Tron, you need to mulligan very aggressively. If you're not mulliganing aggressively and you're just like, Oh, I'll play an idiot on one and I'll play a stone forge on two, grab Calder. Like that's usually not going to do the trick. Um, you need to mulligan swing for the fences and just try to kill them. The Tron deck having access to one ring also creates this pattern where if they get a one ring down, they have three looks at other payoffs that are probably going to be good enough because, I mean, from playing Tron, things you can do are like, if they have Trinisphere, that's really hard to beat on a lot of boards. And then their normal suite of like Ensnaring Bridge, which can be good on certain boards, EE, um, even just the Karn passive can be quite annoying. And that's sort of where I think Tron gets its win percentage. But to me, it seems like if you win the die roll, you're going to be favored on either side of this as like a classic modern thing where you're kind of two ships passing in the night a lot of the time and otherwise the hammer deck doesn't have as much interaction in game one and so they're not interacting with what tron is doing do, do you get upgrades in when you're playing tr versus tron post board what sort of things do you get to add yeah so the the big piece once again surge of salvation you have all those post board um and that's mostly because giver you're almost never wanting to give pro colorless because your hammers fall off but Surge of Salvation protecting everything. You can play some blacksmith skills to beat like an O-Stone or something like that. But the big piece, and this is something I've I added, I think in like the last couple months that I added as kind of a joke and then I tested it and I was like, oh, this is actually really good, is you have at least three Pithing Needles post-board. And so like um, sometimes your Tron opponent keeps seven, they go, you know, expedition map on one, you needle their map and then they lose the game. <laughs> That's a great point. I think that that's a thing where, I mean, Tron does need a critical mass of like things that do the specific effect you're hoping for and, and taking them off of one of those pieces early in the game, especially is almost a death sentence for them. Okay, moving on from Tron, let's talk about Burn a bit. I, I don't have any experience playing Burn against Hammer, but 
you know, maybe you'll lose to Deflecting Palm. Otherwise, I'm not sure if you care about what what the uh, the burn deck is doing. They're kind of slower. Yeah, so they're, they're slower. They can't really address a big dude. And if you ever put a Shadow Spear on a 2-2, you're probably winning the game. Like, I feel bad for Burn because I think that deck's sweet. But man, it just gets dunked on by Hammer. Like, And now, like, with Surge of Salvation, you either encounter their Burn spells that they shoot at your face. Um, with Solitude, especially, now you're never losing to Deflecting Palm because you exile your own guy and gain 12 life. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So basically, yeah, game one against Burn, they can just go creature into Searing Blaze into into multiple removal spells and and you die and that's fine. But that's, you know, sub 5% of the games, I think. The other games is just like, I made a dude, I made another dude. Even, you know, I'll sacrifice my Ginger Brute to counter a Lava Spike. There's just a lot that they have to fight through. Deflecting Palm is pretty easy to play around unless they're doing a lot to pressure you. And yeah, I guess I guess fun fact against burn is if you have giver of runes in play and you hammer up a creature, you attack the deflecting palm, choose that creature. You then give pro colorless to your creatures so the hammer falls off. If a good hammer pilot sits down across the table from burn, this is especially if they have like the solitudes and the full suite of surges. This is a matchup where it feels closer to that, like 70, 30, 80, 20 range. Like it is losable, but things have to go really badly. Yeah, we've talked a lot about Surge too, but in this matchup, it's also just counter your spell. And also you can't do anything else the rest of this turn. Yeah, you even get to block all their creatures, which is extra disgusting. Yeah, super good. Okay, uh, moving on from Burn, let's talk about Murktide next. We talked last week about how Murktide has definitely seen an uptick since the Preordain unban. Um, But with Hammer, you know, you have a lot of ways to play around counter spells. So like that's a concern but not the biggest concern because you have stoneforge mystic and saga to like find your equipment and bring it in without counter magic being able to touch it and you know simply but you can kill them faster than they can kill you in a lot of games and then their red removal all gets blanked when you have an equipped creature so what are your thoughts on the murktide matchup it seems pretty favorable i think it's i think it is favored but i think a lot of the like very favored idea comes from a lot of game one, just trauma from people. Um, I think it's, it's very close overall. And honestly, it's one of my favorite matches like to play period. Cause it's when you're playing like a good hammer player sits down across from a good Murtide player. It's like, there's so much game happening, not on the board where you're planning yeah. out three turns in advance. They might be sandbagging an EE, like any number of things can happen, but game one, not super interesting. Usually it's like, okay, because all of your plans are good against them. Cauldra is fine, but usually it's just like either you hammer them to death and the removal spells don't do anything, or you make constructs that then just eat their board with a shadow spear. Host board is, is really interesting because they could have a million different cards. And the question is, what do you do to play around them? Which is why unintuitively, I think um, this is actually a matchup where people bring in Sanctifier a lot. And I think it's actively pretty bad in the matchup especially if they're on like shredder and now your, your sanctifier doesn't do anything without a hammer and spoiler a hammer on any creature is good. So you don't need to worry about that. But this is a matchup where I think solitude really shines. Cause usually you lose to Murktide when they get ahead of you. So if they get a couple DRCs down and they're able to get delirium, kill a couple of your guys, you lose the game. If you're able to tag one of the DRCs, now you're in good shape. But the biggest offender of course is Ragavan. If they go Ragavan you on one, you play out like an Esper Sentinel or whatever. They kill your guy, hit you. Now they're ahead on mana. Being able to address a Ragavan is really important. 
Um, and then, of course, tagging an 8-8 Merktide feels pretty good, too. Um, games usually go long, so you do get to five mana. But Ursus Saga, easily your best tool, because, like you said, they have a lot of counter magic. Um, and now they, unfortunately, play Stern Scolding, the, the counter a creature with power or toughness two or less, which is, checks notes, every creature in your deck. <laughs> so Saga is easily one of the most important cards. Having a e- uh, needle to grab for engineered explosives is really important as well. Merktide can make it favored post-board, especially if they play a lot of things like Dress Down, because that does just very cleanly answer your uh, your Saga. But other otherwise, it's like, there's no clean rule to the matchup because there is so much play, which is why I just I love playing that matchup. But I I think you you need to f- focus on all right, what cards can I beat? What cards can I not beat? And then those cards you can't beat, they simply don't exist. Like they don't exist and they can't hurt you. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Just sort of playing the what you need to and mm-hmm. ignoring the rest. Yep. Definitely super fun game. So okay. Next up is in the good category, just sort of like the rogue decks that you're going to see in modern pet decks and, and things that people are going to bring because modern is such a big format. Hammer just is faster than almost everything. So thoughts on, on, on that angle? Yeah, so that that's another reason I really like taking Hammer to like an RCQ or something like that because people will show up with whatever decks they like. So like Merfolk, Goblins, any of those tribal decks... Um, you also have just just weird things like Kragenwick Cremator, some of these reanimator shells. Generally, you're just going to be pretty, pretty favored because you have a very like fine tuned, very streamlined, proactive game plan. And then post board, you have tools to bring in. You can bring in solitudes. You can bring in surges. You're just you're just going to be favored against those decks because your deck's more streamlined. It's probably cheaper uh, mana wise. Um, like I played against blue white Thopter Sword with Urza. Uh, at NRG, which I love that deck, but you're going to be favored because you're just like the faster version of that deck. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now that we've looked at the good matchups for Hammer, let's just briefly touch on some of the the worst matchups and and why they're bad and sort of what you can do to counteract that. So one of the the most popular bad matchups right now is Four Color Omnath. We've seen a big tick up in uh, this deck thanks to Up the Beanstalk and that version of it, but it just basically has answers to everything you know it's got ley line binding prismatic ending fury solitude to fair you name it it just has all the good cards so take it away yeah uh this deck is just like design mistakes tribal right um <laughs> it, like it's every every card in that deck is like pretty good against you um so my best advice is just try to kill them every opportunity like they don't have it. They don't have the answer because usually their cheap answers are going to be like Leyline Binding, which will just be live the whole time, or Solitude, which the good news is every white card in their deck is a removal spell. So when they Solitude pitch, that's just two removal spells. But yeah, you just like you just got to buckle up and just jam, like especially pre-board against them. Um, post-board, and I have been looking at this again. I think Hush, uh, not Hushbringer. I think Hushbringer was fine pre-ring, but now that the ring's here, it's like, we need strict proctor. Uh, strict proctor, of course, double like it. It counters all ETBs unless they pay two. We can play around that. It gets a little clunky and awkward sometimes, but I think that's your best plan. Um, yeah, all their all their cards are just like pretty good against you, and I think your your plan should just be jam and uh, cross your fingers. Yeah, that checks out. Okay, um, next up, Yogmoth. So this deck can build up a huge wall of creatures to block your attacks, and then 
kind of pivot into like the control role with Yogmoth and Gris to just kill all your stuff. Thoughts in this matchup and and what yeah. why why it's bad. Yeah, um, so it's bad because if they get a Yogmoth into play and you don't have a creature with a hammer on it, you're basically never getting a creature with a hammer on it. Um, this is one of the main reasons I like the Solitude build of the deck because you can tag the Yogmoth and then go for the kill. Um, I think Surge of Salvation also did a lot to help this matchup because they're a combo deck with Force of Vigor, which is pretty spooky. Um, and this is also a matchup where you want like a pile of Pithing Needles in the sideboard because if you just like name Yogmoth, they, they're a fine deck, but like there's a reason the deck is named Yogmoth. Sure. Um, so if you name if you name that, you usually shut off a lot of their outs and you can actually potentially get them. So I think this is a much better matchup than Omnath just on how the, the plans play out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if it, it feels like it doesn't get much worse than Omnath. It it doesn't. Uh, we, we might talk about one more that it's close. But um, the other thing I do want to call out against Yogmoth is Cauldra, even though it seems medium it's like oh it's a five five it has trample and it's indestructible and by pressuring yogmoth's life total it means effectively that they can't activate yog as much so limiting their life total early with an early cauldra can honestly just carry you the rest of the way yeah that that makes a lot of sense being able to just pressure their life total is important what about living end tell us about the living end matchup yo this matchup is dog um (laughs) so so game one it is quite bad because their game plan is wrath of god at instant speed and like that's not good um there's a reason i always have four dranith magistrates in my sideboard and it's because almost every time you stick a dranith magistrate you win the game because their fair plan unlike rhinos is really bad like their fan fair plan is terrible so you stick a dranith you protect the dranith you probably win the game. Um, fun little trick against living end is have the, if you get ginger brute into play, don't attack with it. Just hold it up. So that way, if they living end you, you sacrifice it in response and it'll come back. And now it's effectively an unblockable attacker. And that's then, a cool way to, to recover and just like kill them the turn after they think they stabilize. <laughs> yeah. I call it the just desserts. Um, <laughs> But uh, the other two pieces I do want to throw out are Surge of Salvation is insane in the matchup, primarily because it protects your Dranith from getting griefed. Like, and they are a Force of Vigor deck, but like weirdly, I care more about the discard spell than I do about the uh, the Force of Vigor here. And then the last piece against Living End really is Solitude. Um, in the older versions of Living End, I wasn't as huge of a fan of Solitude against them. But now that they're usually going for Living Ends with smaller creature counts because their creatures are all gigantic with the Mammoth and the, the Ent, if they grief you and you Solitude, you exile their grief, it, the Solitude goes to the yard. Then when they Living End, your Solitude comes back, you get to exile another thing. Um, it won't win the game, but it will buy you a lot of time, which is usually what you need in the matchup. I'm trying to think. The last tip and trick there would probably be if you can ever get all the non-creatures out of your hand when they grief you, them having to take a pure still paladin probably means they die when they living in because the paladin comes back, you get to do a lot of things. So if you can ever put a paladin into the graveyard against them, it's a really good spot to be. All right, let's talk about, I think this will probably be our last matchup we go over. Let's talk about Amulet, just a little bit of what happens in that matchup. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I just wake up and I die. Um, <laughs> Sounds <laughs> so, like Amulet. <laughs> 
Yeah, like Amulet is tricky. Um, I think it was a much better matchup. It was never good, but it was it was much better before the advent of the One Ring um, because now they just get to fog you and then probably kill you the next turn. Um, kind of like Yawgmoth, they are a pretty fast combo deck, but they have Force of Vigor and they also have multiple Besejus and way to find them. Um, Amulet, yeah, just, just try to kill them. Um, Solitude is a card that helps a lot in this matchup, but sometimes they just have the second Titan or the second Dryad anyway. But yeah, sometimes you're just going to lose, and that's okay. This is another matchup where I want the Strict Proctor again because it triggers, it counters all their Amulet triggers as well. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I sit on Amulet. It's like, this is not a good matchup, and that's okay. Yeah, that checks out. Okay, well, I think that's a good rundown of sort of the, the different matchups right now we're seeing in the meta, but Travis, we have you on because you're the pro here. So let's talk about some of the tips and tricks for playing Hammer. You know, whatever you want to sort of touch on, you can you can just do a quick run through or go down the list. How are how are you going to gain an edge here? What are the, some of the maybe non-intuitive plays that are really powerful? The floor is yours. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are quite a few. Um, some you want anyone who's initially picking up the deck to know. Um, the first one that I always bring up is remember, if you put a hammer on an ink moth nexus, you can activate ink moth nexus again to give it flying. A lot of people, including the people that I'm attacking still don't realize that. And so you'll win. Um, it's, it's just like pretty, pretty simple. Um, forge has a lot of play to it because it allows you to move things around in the middle of combat. Obviously, if you have a Cauldre and a Forge Anew in play, you can hit them with the Cauldre and then move the Cauldre to another attacker to get an extra instance of damage. But obviously, the, the best use of Forge Anew is just attack with multiple creatures. Whatever they don't block, you put a hammer on and they die. And then Pure Steel Paladin is just a beating. Uh, the first line of text where it says, I think it's the first line, where it says, when an art of, when an equipment enters battlefield under your, play, your, play, your control, draw a card. Yeah, don't um ignore that line of text. Get your metalcraft first. Yeah, get your metalcraft first, play your paladin, and immediately generate eight mana um by moving the hammer. Now that being said, sometimes yeah, they're tapped out, you know they can't answer it. Play your paladin, draw three cards, and just go nuts. Um, but yeah, paladin is a really, really messed up card. Um, fun little play with paladin, and this is why I will always play the one paradise mantle. Is if you ever have metalcraft, then paradise mantle will allow all of your creatures to tap for a colored mana because you can move it for free. Um, which is usually how you cast things like a Marius Call, and you can hard cast Cauldra in a in a weird way. The trick with Sigarda's aid and the living weapons, so nettle cyst and Cauldra. Remember that the germ is a mandatory trigger. So you always want that one to resolve first and then target something else with the Sigarda's aid. The other thing to keep in mind is aids are may triggers. So you can say, oh, you know, I'll make my germ that resolves. And then, yeah, I'm targeting the Stoneforge Mystic or whatever. And they go, yeah, that's fine. If you want to protect that creature. So against like Murktide, if you can put a Cauldra onto a two drop, it's basically impossible for them to answer. If they say it resolves, then you can say yes or no to it. So you can either keep your 5-5 five, five, or you can you know, move it to something else. Yeah, let's talk about the uh, the priority dance with Urza Saga and EE, because I think it's one that comes up more often than people think, and they don't know how to play around it. So this is basically only going to happen in this instance where your opponent has EE, Engineered Explosives, for zero, and you have one construct in play, and your Saga is ticking up to three. You let it go up to three, and at that point, you have three options. You can make a construct, you can float a mana, 
or you can do nothing and pass priority. It's almost always correct to do nothing and pass priority because if your opponent does nothing, then your your saga goes, you lose the mana, but you search up a pithing needle put into play and it is naming engineered explosives so they cannot pop it. There's not a window for them. If you pass priority and they say, oh, I need to kill this construct, they pop their EE, then you get priority again. So you now get to make a construct and you still get to search, but now you don't have to grab Pithing Needle. Um, and if you float mana, and this can be correct uh, because maybe you've planned out your turn and you need the mana. If you float the mana, they can then pop the EE and you you lose your construct. Um, or, you know, you can, they could not pop it, but that seems weird. But yeah, so... Remember, if your opponent has an EE on zero, you have a construct and you can choose to make another one, you should probably just pass priority. Um, and then I'm trying to think, there, there are a bunch of little ones. Um, fun with fun one with Solitude is if you flash it in, you can tap it with Springleaf Drum to add a mana. That's a fun one. Um, and then Forge Anew, of course, is very good because it like, it's not usually a reanimation card, but when it does reanimate something, remember that it can grab Cauldra, so your opponent probably loses the game. Um, it's also nice because if you play Forge Anew, you bring back, say, a hammer and you have Sigardizade, that first attach is not an equip, so you still get the free equip off of Forge Anew. So you can say, you know, you have an Ornithopter in play, you play Forge Anew with Sigardizade in play, you get the hammer back, Sigardizade trigger, you target the Ornithopter. If they kill it with, say, a Bolt, you can then equip it again in response, which is, it's a fun line. I think that's like a lot of the really common interactions. Cauldra can give all your guys haste if you have Pure Steel Paladin in play, which is a fun one. I do actually want to touch on one other thing. If your opponent has Bowmaster in play, that's fine with your Paladin. Just choose not to draw. So they have Bowmaster in play. Play your, play your hammer out. They, and, and I say trigger and they say, okay, I say I will decline to draw. Now the Bowmaster that they're holding up in their hand is not going to kill the Paladin. People forget that you can just choose not to draw because drawing cards is fun, but that's not, that's not what it's about in that case. I think those are the big ones. I think a lot of the other kind of small interactions we talked about kind of through the matchups. That's a great list. Thank yeah, you. I think the last note you made with Pure Steel against Bowmaster is great. I think most players would not know that one, and especially like if your plan is you need to equip something right after you play it and the, the equipment triggers the Pure Steel, like if you miss that interaction, that's just the difference between the whole game. Yeah, that's and that is something that's that's really tough about Hammer. It's like when you mess up with Hammer, even if it was just like a small sequencing decision, like, oh, I didn't play my land first or whatever. It feels so bad to get blown out by it. Um, but that's just part of the the learning, the learning curve. And you will you will learn uh, when when you can uh, play around things and when you can. I think that's the other hard part. Like a lot of times it is correct to just jam um because the game usually is not getting better for you as as it drags on but people are scared to just jam because it's like oh well what if what if i lose and it's like well you're gonna lose anyway that's fine so just jamming is usually correct and and people lose that like when they first start playing they just jam and then when they start to learn about all the cards they can play around they stop just jamming and they start losing more and they're like why am i losing it's like because they don't have it your opponent never has it the trick with hammer is to disrespect your opponent <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Travis. And I, I think you did a really excellent job recapping the Hammer Deck, talking through all the matchups. Where can people find you if they want to look at your Twitter, your find your content? What's the best place for people to do all of that? 
Yeah, so I'm disgruntled elk. Sometimes it's underscore. Sometimes there's a space in there. Um, sometimes it's one word, but I'm I'm thinking I'm the only disgruntled elk on the internet um, because Oko got banned. So uh, Twitter, disgruntled elk. Um, I have a YouTube channel that I post. I try to post pretty regularly, but I think it's about once or twice a month where I go through either a league or recently I did some testing against rhinos with my buddy, which was great. And then um, I also have a Patreon, which I think it's like four bucks a month. You get an updated sideboard guide, thoughts on the meta, and an updated list. And so I, I update that at least once a month, if not twice. So that's that's kind of the three spots where you can find me. Yeah, and I, I just want to give a shout out to your Patreon, too. It's very nice. And, and you're very interactive on there. So people, you know, if they have questions or whatever, you, I'd see you're always replying. And that's nice to not, not just get the sideboard, but like also be able to ask questions and follow up. So definitely recommend that all right but yeah like nathan said thank you again so much for having uh for taking the time to come on we appreciate your time and all of the knowledge that you've shared with us and all the listeners um great talking to you uh anything else we want to touch on before we head out for the day no just uh just jam and uh, i hope everyone kind of has some fun modern isn't a great spot even though like i don't really like the one ring but i don't know play well you'll have bad matchups that's okay just and play a deck you enjoy is my biggest recommendation. Play magic when you're having fun and when you're not go touch grass. <laughs> Excellent advice. Excellent advice. All right. Uh, Nathan mentioned it earlier, but we have the world championship coming up soon for him. So uh, probably in our next episode, we'll be back to recap that and talk about everything from Las Vegas and the adventures of standard and wilds of Eldraine. So good luck to Nathan competing there. And until the next time, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the bold zone. If you enjoy the show, please give us a follow and leave a review on your podcast platform. We read every review and love to hear from you. If you want to get in touch with Nathan and I, you can use the hashtag bolt zone chat on Twitter, ask us questions, let us know what you're up to. We'll, interact with you that way and if you want to help support the show consider subscribing to the patreon we'll put the link for that in the show notes and thanks again to boogie board for their sponsorship but until next time get out there and sling some spells